But today we're going to begin our sermon series in the book of Exodus in the most obvious place to begin a sermon series in the book of Exodus, and that is in the New Testament. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament, and we're going to first be in John chapter 5. The reason why the New Testament, why I mention this, is because there's actually this very famous preacher, and there's a book that he recently wrote, and he's been going around promoting this idea, in which he says he believes in the Old Testament, but he says it's no longer useful for us in understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And uh, I would just respectfully disagree with that position. I do so because Jesus himself tells us that the Old Testament is all about testifying of him. In the book of John, chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus said this to some religious teachers at the time, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But all of these, he said, testify of me. All of these testify of me. Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. He's not talking in this case about the New Testament scriptures. Those had not been written yet. The scriptures he is speaking of that testify and tell us about Jesus are the Old Testament scriptures, including the book of Exodus. Also, we're told in the book of Luke, The book of Luke, chapter 24 and verse 27, that after Jesus' resurrection, he was walking with some followers, some disciples, and they were struggling with their doubt. And the Bible tells us that Jesus began to explain who he was and his mission to them. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, and beginning with Moses, who is the author of the book of Exodus, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, again speaking of what we would now define as the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Jesus said all these scriptures, beginning in Moses, beginning back in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, all these things, and through the prophets and and all the, the stories and the histories, they testify of Jesus. So, why do we study the book of Exodus? Because it teaches us so much about Jesus. And we want to learn more and grow more in our relationship with Jesus. But another reason why we study the book of Exodus in particular is because of what it says about our relationship and how we are to live and how we are to exist in relationship to Jesus even in these last days. If you want to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is 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 all about, uh, Paul here is referencing the stories, many of them that we will examine through this sermon series, the stories of the book of Exodus. And, and he, he, he at one point says that, 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 the, that the, the pillar that, that the Israelites were following was the rock, Christ Jesus. Of course, the rock pre-incarnate Christ before Jesus became human. But also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 Paul says this about the Exodus story, about, about these times of history. Now, these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, meaning the time in which he lived, and also on whom the end of the ages has come. God inspired Moses to write down the happenings of the book of Exodus to instruct not only the people that lived in the days of Moses, but also the people that lived in the days of Jesus and the people that lived in the days of Paul, and also those that would live throughout history and 
in the time of the end. Exodus teaches us how to live, how to, how to be mindful of what God calls us to in these last days. And with that, let us turn to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, so way back at the very beginning, and chapter 1. And thank you so much, Barbara, for your wonderful reading of our passage today in Exodus chapter 1. And before we go there, let's pray. Jesus, as Paul said, you wrote these things down, you had these things written down to instruct us. So I pray that you will instruct each one of our hearts and our minds as we open today's passage, but also as we journey through the book of Exodus. We thank you in your name, Jesus. Amen. Exodus chapter 1 begins where Genesis leaves off. God's people, now known as the Israelites, are dwelling in the land of Egypt. They had escaped a tragedy. They left some sort of struggle in their homeland, a famine that was happening in their homeland. And now through this struggle and trying to get away from, from, from the famine in their own land, they find themselves peacefully living in Egypt. Verse 7 of Exodus 1 reads, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They were, they were growing. They were, they were prospering there in Egypt. Something to note that we should take note of here. These people, these Israelites, the people of God, were refugees. They were foreigners in this land, brought about by circumstances uh, that were out of their control, brought into this land. And the Bible tells us that, that all the people that were living when the Israelites first came into Egypt were all gone. They had all died. Verse 6 tells us Joseph, his brothers, and all that generation, the generation that brought God's people to Egypt, had all died. In other words, these people that had been living in Egypt, all they knew was Egypt. This was, this was the only home that they had had. And for decades and generations, they had lived in peace. But then this place of peace and promise and prosperity turned into a place of, of threat and bondage and fear. Verse 8 tells us, now there arose a new king over Egypt, a new pharaoh over Egypt, who did not know, mine read, who did not know Joseph. This is not speaking of a lack of knowledge. Of course, they, they understood, this king would have understood the histories. The Egyptians kept histories, and he would have understood the history of who Joseph was and what Joseph had done through history. What the Bible is saying here is that this man, this individual, had no respect for the role that Joseph had played in history. He had no respect for, for, for how the Israelites had gotten there and, and for, for the reason why they were in that land. He just knew that now there were a lot of them, and he didn't like it. A king arose who did not know, who did not respect, who did not appreciate the history of the past. This leader was also very insecure. Despite his power, his power as the leader of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, he expressed concern that if, if they were ever attacked, all the foreigners in the land would, would join forces with Egypt's enemies and overthrow him and their country. I read one commentator's account of this as a thin skin of reason wrapped around a lie. In other words, Pharaoh used 
the pretext of a national threat. He used the pretext of a national threat, the nation being in danger because of these foreigners, as a pretext for persecuting them and beginning to oppress them. This is what he was doing. Blaming things on ethnic minorities is always convenient because racism is a part of the sinful nature, mine and yours. So Pharaoh begins this, this kind of nationalistic propaganda. Then he lays, begins to lay extra burdens on these foreigners in the land of Egypt. Verse 11, they set taskmasters over them, them being the Israelites, to afflict them with heavy burdens. He begins to make laws to, to oppress these people. But Pharaoh's plan was not working. Here's the thing, whenever, whenever man makes a plan, if God has a different plan, man's plan is not going to work. His propaganda, his nationalistic fervor that, that led to, to this lowly compensated workforce only resulted in the people continuing to flourish. The more they were oppressed, the Bible tells us, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. He tried to keep them down, but the more they did so, the more they were lifted up. And the Egyptians, verse 12 tells us, were in dread of the people of Israel. They were being, these people were being oppressed and they were, they, were, they were being put, taskmasters were being put over there and there was this, this propaganda against them that these people were dangerous and scary and we, we needed to control them and, and the people just kept growing, growing and, and the people, the Bible tells us the Egyptian community, the Egyptian nation began to have dread of the people of Israel. Rather than re-examining their motives, rather than them stepping back, and saying, maybe what we are doing is not right. Maybe what we are doing is not okay. They doubled down on their hatred and their racism. And the Bible tells us in verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. It went from, went from fear and propaganda to, to oppression to now abject slavery in this time. What we see here, folk, is the danger of power. If you are an individual that possesses power, if we are individuals that possess power, we should be extremely vigilant in how we use that power. But on the other hand, if we are individuals that have a role in giving power to others, we must be extremely mindful of who we give that power to. Something to note in this entire opening story is that we are never told the name of Pharaoh or the king. His name is never, never given. He's never given recognition for history. Maybe this is because, the, in many ways, the Pharaoh was not a private individual. Rather, he represented the entire nation of Egypt. He represented all those that stood by and gave him and, a, a power and supported him in his racist acts. Leaders are not the only ones to blame, but also those who give them the power or stand by in silence. The lust for power is rarely ever satisfied when it is placed into the wrong hands, when it's placed in the wrong hands. Verse 15 tells us in Exodus chapter 1, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women 
and see them on the birthstool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Remember, his, his propaganda was these people may rise up and attack us. So he wanted to get rid of all the men who he thought would, 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 would wage war potentially against him and his nation. Here's, here's something that I, I find I, I like about this passage. While the name of Pharaoh is never given for the posterity of the historical records, the heroines of the story in this little section are given. Shipra and Pua, two midwives who, who otherwise would have just gone by without any recognition. These two midwives are recognized in Scripture. They teach us as believers something very important. Two, two things that I believe are very important as, as believers. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The lesson these ladies teach us, twofold. As believers in God, we are to value the life of others even above that of our own. What these ladies were doing was they were putting their own lives in risk for the sake of these babies, for the sake of these, these, these children who had not yet been born yet, who were going to be born. If, the, if someone had gone to Pharaoh or the king and said, you know, these ladies are showing up late on purpose, these ladies' lives are done. They teach us as believers that we are to value the lives of others over even our own lives. The second thing that these ladies teach us is that when the laws of man contradict the laws of God, we are always to stand in civil disobedience against the laws of man. When the laws of man contradict the laws of God, we are always to stand in civil disobedience against the laws of of men. We should not stand under the text that God establishes all leaders, therefore we must submit to everything that they do. God allows leaders to be raised up and taken down, but this does not mean that everything they do we stand in subjugation to. We see here clearly there is a time and a place to practice civil disobedience. These heroines are named in the Bible and pointed out because they stood in the civil disobedience and did not value their lives more than the lives of those children. The Bible tells us in verse 20 that, that God valued what they were doing, that God appreciated what they're doing. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Again, in the midst of all this, in the darkness that was going on, the propaganda and then the oppression and then the slavery and now even wanting to get rid of these children, this murder that was taking place or being called for to take place. In the midst of all that, the people are continuing to grow. It reminds us that even in the midst of the most, in the darkest of times, God's plan is still taking place. God is still moving. God is still working. But it tells us something else, that God was pleased with these ladies' civil disobedience. He was, he was honored by their willingness to stand against the laws of man, to stand for the law of God. They stood up for the oppressed, and God honored them. He gave them families of their own. He gave them families of their own. Unfortunately, Pharaoh was a despot. 
And he now implores the people of the land to turn on their neighbors. It's not working with these midwives. Something's not working. I've now got to get the people involved. Verse 22. The Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This began with nationalistic propaganda, fear-mongering. We must do something about this people. And it ends with a call for civilians to practice violence against people that they had lived with, that they had worked with, that they had done business with. And now he's saying, if you're an Egyptian, turn on those that are refugees, the foreigners in our land. Pharaoh did all this. Kristallnacht, for my German friends in here, I apologize if I said slaughtered that, but it means the night of broken glass. I was in Munich a couple years ago and I was walking one evening, it was just before dark and I was walking down a road and, and uh, I came upon this building and I saw a plaque and it looked like a historical plaque and I love history and so I paused to read it. It was in German so I couldn't read it so I did what every uh, one of us would do. I pulled out my iPhone. Thank goodness for technology. And I, and I figured out what it was saying and it was saying, it was saying that in this location that I was standing in front of is where the propaganda, where Goebbels gave his speech to begin the night of broken glass. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, propaganda and oppression, oppression had been building against the Jewish people for some time there in Germany. Then on November 9, 1939, Joseph Goebbels, the director of propaganda for the Third Reich, delivered a passionate speech in Munich, Germany, calling for radical action against the Jewish people within Germany. But he was not calling on the government to make laws against the people of Germany. He was not calling on the police to do specific things against the Jewish people of Germany. He was not calling on the army to do specific things against the, pe the Jewish people in Germany. He was actually now calling on the civilians to join them in taking radical action against the Jewish people in Germany. The civilians were asked to join in him and, and, and the Third Reich in carrying out brutality against their neighbors, against the people that they walked the streets with, against the people that they had done business with for years. And for two days, mayhem and destruction reigned. In two days, over 250 synagogues were burned. Over 7,000 Jewish businesses were trashed and looted. Dozens of Jewish people were killed. And Jewish cemeteries, hospitals, schools, and homes were looted while police and fire brigades stood by as the civilians attacked their neighbors. The morning after the pogroms, as they were called, 30,000 German Jewish men were arrested for the crime of being Jewish and sent to concentration camps where we know that many of them died. From propaganda to civilian persecution, this is exactly what happened in Egypt. It happened in Egypt, it was repeated in, 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 in some of your lifetime, and we should never be so blind to think that it could not happen again. And we should never be so blind that it could not happen here, and we should never be so blind to think that it could also happen against us as well. But in the midst of all this darkness, all this hate, all this anger, something kept happening. The story, just at a quick reading, it seems to be nothing but doom and gloom. Oppression, hatred, anger, 
violence, genocide, but the hints throughout. Verse 12, the people continued to multiply and spread all the more. Slavery and the threat of infanticide. Verse 20, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Neighbor turning against neighbor based upon the perceived threat of racial differences. And once again, we see God's hand and we see it open up even more clearly in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Then when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood by at a distance, that's the sister of the boy who was in the basket, to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came to, down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw a basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from, a he from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. The girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. In the midst of all this chaos and, yes, genocide, God uses the civil disobedience of three more women to give us one more glimpse of hope before the story closes. The mother of a baby boy, we later learn in scriptures, her name is Jochebed, hides her son from those helping Pharaoh to carry out his mission of hate. When his hiding becomes untenable in their home, her and her daughter, who we later learn, is named Miriam, develop and carry out a plan to try and save the little baby boy. They put the boy in the Nile, the funny thing is, is that they're obeying Pharaoh. They put him in the Nile. They just put him safely in the Nile. They put him in this basket, this, this lovingly made and cared for basket to protect this baby. I pause to note something, and I hope that we are these people. In this month of February where Black History Month is celebrated, I'm grateful for the conductors like Maryland's own Harriet Tubman, who made a basket of sorts to, to help slaves get from the South up into Canada and into freedom. I'm grateful for, for the chesedi umat halom, the righteous among the nations, the term used to describe those who, who created baskets, hiding places for Jews during the Holocaust. I pray that we as a people if we are ever placed in such a situation, seeing the oppression of others, that we will be conductors, that we will be hasedi um ahalom, basket builders for our neighbors and the foreigners among us, that we will be the righteous among this nation to protect those who are being oppressed. So they put the baby boy in the Nile. And the third heroine, of this civil disobedience is an unexpected one. The third heroine of this, of this step in civil disobedience is the very daughter of Pharaoh. 
The daughter of Pharaoh came down to the river to bathe. They were walking beside the river. They, the, the, she sees this basket. She pulls this basket in. She opens it up. And there's a crying baby and her heart is touched. Her heart is touched. She knew it was a Hebrew baby. She said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Knowing that, she knew what she must do. Take that baby out and drop him in the river and kill him. As an Egyptian, as the daughter of Pharaoh himself, this was her obligation. But instead of doing that, she played a vital role in preserving God's people. Can I point out to you an irony in this story? Pharaoh at every turn is trying to destroy the men to destroy the Israelite males. He forgot all about the women who did everything they could to preserve God's people. Should have been more concerned with the women and less worried about protecting the men. Our story ends for the day with this text. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. Not her servant. Not just a child in the house. She became her son, a grandson of Pharaoh because she said, I drew him out of the water. For the view of you that may not know this story, spoiler alert, Moses becomes the man God will use to save God's people from Egypt and bring them back to their promised land. Maybe I don't need to say it at all, but just in case, the lesson that we can all hopefully take from this story is that in the worst and in the vilest and in the darkest points of our world's history and yes, in the darkest points of your own life, God is still working and there are still glimmers of hope. If you're going through a dark time right now, will you remember this story of Moses? Will you remember a king who was looking to destroy God's people and in the end, the one that would save God's people was raised in that very king's home? That is the God that we serve. That is the God that we serve. Remember where Satan is working, Jesus is working all the more. Where Satan is seeking to destroy, God is developing a plan to establish life. Where Satan is trying to oppress and bring you down, Jesus is preparing a way for people to be set free. And when Satan is wanting to discourage you, remember the story of Moses, the baby in the basket, and remember, remember that even the enemy is helping to raise up a savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we all have our own struggles and we all have our own trials and this world is full of trial and tribulation. Lord, in the midst of this, give us hope. Help us to remember this child, this baby. It was rescued from the Nile by one who was to be his enemy because God, you are always working. 
you're always preparing a way. Even when we can't see it in the darkest of moments, you are preparing a way. And Jesus, as we remember this story, help us too to remember that as believers, we are to serve you in such a way that the oppressed are being set free. And that the downtrodden and put down are being lifted up through our support. And that we are protecting those that others are trying to destroy. Lord, we thank you. And we love you. And we thank you for the hope that you show us exists even in one of the worst and despicable times in history. In your name we pray. Amen.